Well, thank you, <coughs> Anne, uh, very much for that uh, kind introduction. Um, first, ladies and gentlemen, I should like to thank the Centre for Independent Studies and especially Greg Lindsay for having invited me to Australia. It's always a great pleasure to come to Sydney, uh, though whenever I do so, I always come to lament uh, the state of the world. Um, but as I'm sure you know, there's a great deal of fun in lamentation. So. <laughs> And uh, pessimists are usually better fun than optimists as well. Well, this is the first time I, in my life I've ever spoken at uh, an opera house. And when I was told that I was um, going to speak at the opera house, uh, it sort of chimed with a, a repeated nightmare that I have, that uh, I have been uh, contracted to sing Germont or Rodolfo. <laughs> for which I'm about as, um, about as qualified as a kookaburra. Um, but I shall uh, speak rather than sing. Well, the title of my talk uh, this evening uh, contains the phrase, a broken society. Uh, and this is a phrase that should not be made to bear more meaning than it has. Societies don't break. Uh, they continue to exist even after a catastrophe though often in an unpleasant way. The nearest to an account of a broken society that I have read is by a, an anthropologist whose uh, name was Turnbull. Um, Colin Turnbull, I don't think there's any uh, relationship. Um, but uh, according to uh, Turnbull, uh, the, the Ik people of Uganda uh, became deeply psychopathic after... Uh, there was a terrible drought there, and each person pursued his own ends with a, a callousness and indifference to the suffering of their spouses and even of their children of quite astonishing degree. They found the suffering of their own children funny, according to Ick. Now, uh, this account has been challenged as inaccurate because he stayed with the Ick uh, about as long as I'm staying in Sydney. And... Um, and uh, he didn't speak the language. And incidentally, uh, I, I think I do speak the language in Sydney, but uh, um, uh, I was um, pleased to meet somebody in Brisbane who knew the ick and said that uh, Turnbull got it all wrong. When we talk of a broken society, we seem to imply, at least if we take the term too literally, that there was ever a whole society that was not broken or fractured. That is to say, a society whose every member felt completely at, at harmony with it. And this is utopianism projected onto the past, of course. Such a society has never existed. And it's the whole point of Dr. Johnson's famous uh, fable, Rasselas, that dissatisfaction is the permanent condition of mankind. Uh, there's no perfect sublunary existence for man, and uh, we are all prey to conflicting and contradictory uh, desires that cannot all be satisfied at the same time or even in a lifetime. Uh, and that has certainly been my experience of life. Well, two weeks ago, I visited the Sydney Justice and Crime Museum, which I must say is a very good antidote to romanticising the past. Uh, the exhibition dealt with the decades from 1910 to the 1940s, and there was obviously in those years a kind of poverty and squalor uh, that is far greater than anything uh, seen today. 
When we criticise our own societies, then, we do not do so from the standpoint of wanting to return to a mythical past in which everyone behaved as we should wish and all was well. On the other hand, we should not be so self-congratulatory that we have transcended a past uh, whose great defects, moral and material, we now see clearly uh, and that we can or ought to feel completely satisfied uh, with our glorious present. Each age has its own problems and we have to think about them for ourselves. Though we must not idealise the past, this does not mean that we have nothing to learn from it and nothing to envy it in any respect whatsoever. And let me illustrate what I mean by reference to crime. Statistics in this field are, of course, contested and they're not always very easy to interpret. But it does seem that the 20th century saw an enormous increase in the levels of crime in many Western countries, not least my own uh, Great Britain. In 1900, there were about 100,000 indictable crimes known to the police, and in 1990, there were 5 million. Uh, there are definitional problems, of course, and there's been an increase in the size of the population, and it is sometimes said that it is now easier to report crimes than it was because of the spread of the telephones. Um, and all I can say is I wonder whether the people who say that have ever uh, tried to report a crime to the British police by telephone. <laughs> Uh, where crimes are few, it is likely that a great proportion of them are reported. And in fact, it was easier to find a policeman on the street to report a crime to in 1900 than it is now. One of the little remarked aspects of the story of Jack the Ripper is that when a body was discovered, locals ran for a policeman and were able to find one within a very short time, a few minutes at the most. And the policeman would be patrolling on his own and he was equipped with a bullseye lamp, a whistle and a truncheon, which he was enjoined to use only as a very last resort. And this was in Whitechapel, which was then regarded as the very worst and most dangerous slum in the whole of the country. Well, I don't think a policeman uh, now would venture on his own in Whitechapel or any other place uh, like it, uh, armed only with a bullseye lamp a whistle and a truncheon. The comparative safety of Whitechapel, which we may infer, was not because it was not, uh, because it was not poor, of course. The levels of uh, deprivation, squalor, hardship, hunger, cold, illness, and so on, were on a scale quite unknown uh, today. When my father was born, uh, not so very far, actually, from Whitechapel, and 30 years after Jack the Ripper, his life expectancy at birth would have been less than 48, and the infant mortality rate, that is to say the proportion of uh, children uh, born alive who die before their first birthday, was 124 per thousand. That is to say an eighth of, a ch of children born died before their first birthday, and London at that time was one of the healthiest cities in Europe. Well, let me give you another example. In 1950, there were in the whole of New Zealand, according to statistics, New Zealand, 200 violent crimes recorded by the police. In 1999, there were 70,000 recorded by the police. Even allowing for the doubling of the population and the possible differences in the methods of recording and classifying violent crime, this is a very startling increase. 
It cannot be because New Zealand was richer in 1950 than it was in 1999. Nor is it a racial problem. Uh, not only were the Maori present in New Zealand in more or less the same proportion in 1950, but when you factor out violent crimes committed by the Maori, the increase remains for the rest of the population. In the United States, the homicide rate is five times what it was in 1900. This might not sound very startling, but a paper not long ago suggested that if the same resuscitation and surgical techniques were used today as were used in 1960, the homicide rate would be five times higher than it is, meaning that many victims of violence survive today who would have died in 1960. Now, by 1960, resuscitation and surgical techniques were many, many times more effective than those used in 1900, when, for example, there was no blood transfusion. In short, then, we can say that the homicidal attack rate is scores of times higher than it was in 1900, even though uh, the United States then was regarded as a very violent place by comparison with Europe. And again, it cannot seriously be argued that the United States suffered less poverty in 1900 than in 19, uh, 2015. Well, the point I'm trying to make is that there is not and cannot be a simple mechanical relationship between poverty and crime. It is true, of course, that in any given society, the poor tend to commit more crime, at least the kinds of crime that we're worried about, than uh, the rich the kind of crimes on the street and the type of crimes we, some people worry about when they're on their own in their home. But even here the relationship is not simply a mechanical one, and the same applies to relative poverty as to absolute poverty. In some cases, the causative relationship may even be the opposite of the one that is frequently touted. Criminality may be so prevalent that it inhibits and makes pointless efforts to escape. But whatever the explanation of crime, the causation has to operate through the mediating influence of the human mind. For in our jurisprudence, at any rate, the proximate cause of crime must be the decision of the criminal to commit it. The decision might itself be uh, affected by many factors, but it is still the necessary and proximate cause of crime. And to deny this, even when there are powerful extenuating circumstances, is to deny the, crimin the criminal his humanity. Here I interpose for your consideration something so elementary that I should be ashamed to mention it were it not so often forgotten. And that is that while it is true that the majority of crime in any given society is usually committed by the relatively poor, the overwhelming majority of victims of crime are also the poor or the relatively poor. Burglars, for example, are not great travellers. Um, they tend to break into the houses which come uh, nearest to, to Jemmy. And since the class of victim is very much larger than the class of perpetrator, thanks to the phenomenon of recidivism, sympathy for the criminal without greater sympathy for the victim is for many vulnerable and victimised people whom I used to see in the morning and in the afternoon I would go and see the people who had victimised them, it is to add insult to injury and it is not at all the generosity of spirit 
that some people mistake it for. Moreover, I would add uh, something that is also fairly obvious, that the marginal harm done to the poor victim is usually greater than that done to the rich victim. For the latter, it is upsetting and annoying to be victimised by a burglar, of course, uh, but I wouldn't mind betting that here this evening there are not many people, the majority of whose worldly goods or wealth could be carried off by a burglar. There are, however, people in our societies, uh, and certainly there are in Great Britain, of whom this is not true. For them, a burglary is a devastating economic uh, blow. Uh, I hope uh, now you'll forgive me if I refer a little more to my personal experience. There are dangers in anecdotal evidence, of course, uh, but there are less publicised dangers in the lack of anecdotal evidence. Mankind is not just a collection of abstract qualities, uh, it is composed of beings of flesh and blood. And when an anecdote, the, the outline of an anecdote, can be repeated many thousands of times, it's more than just an anecdote. Uh, for many years I used to walk uh, the few hundred yards between the hospital in which I was working in the morning and the prison in which I worked in the afternoon. The main difference between these two great institutions was that there was far more violence in the hospital. Uh, for fairly obvious reasons, actually. Among other things, this little walk taught me uh, was that there, the connection between car crime and clement weather. On nice sunny days, the, the pavement en route would be strewn prettily with the shards of glass of windows of the parked cars, often six or seven or eight broken into in the space of... 500 yards. This was never the case in the cold or the rain. What this told me was that car crime was not the consequence of raw need, for in our climate, raw necessity is more likely to occur in periods of cold and inclement weather than in the, uh, than in in the few periods of sunshine. Um, and uh, So I concluded that the cause of crime was weather. Same, incidentally, is true of burglary. I should perhaps here interpose that the streets through which I walked were very near and socially very similar to a street about which a television documentary programme was made called Benefit Street. Uh, the benefit of Benefit Street being, of course, the state benefits and the welfare benefits, unemployed, sick, allegedly sick, uh, upon whom the, uh, a very high percentage, upon which, I should say, the, a very high percentage of the population was dependent for its subsistence. One of the stars of the show, an intelligent and, in some respects, a resourceful, slatternly woman, a serial single mother, has since become a millionaire living in Spain, thanks to her appearance on the programme. But what the programme showed very clearly was that the so-called dependent class was far from passive, but reacted to the perverse incentives that it was given, uh, and reacted with what I suppose I might call uh, parasitic entrepreneurialism, or entrepreneurial parasitism. <laughs> on my walk from hospital to prison, I used to examine the plentiful rubbish en route. The vast majority of it was the detritus of meals and other refreshments that people had taken while uh, walking along. 
Interesting, at least for me, was the fact that the householders did not clear up the rubbish that had been thrown or strewn onto their front gardens, as if they had not noticed it when they went in and out of their front doors. And I also learned that an Englishman's street is now his dining room. This is actually not a, a slight matter, as you might think. Uh, I was familiar uh, by my visits as a doctor to the insides of quite a lot of these houses that I passed en route, no, uh, on my way to the prison, which was known locally as the big house. I might say en passant, but one of the households has as its members a notorious alcoholic father and three vastly fat daughters who were about the size of a beached whale, whose main claim to fame, quite literally, was that they had all had a child by the same man. Yes, some man. Anyway, an American television program that specialised in social pathology for the delectation of uh, TV uh, daytime masses uh, got wind of this story and flew uh, them over, giving them a fee, I believe, of $50,000. The most important item in the households that I visited was usually the flat-screen television on the wall, which was almost as large as a cinema. But there was very rarely any piece of furniture at which members of the household could sit to eat a meal. There was no, use, uh, there was no sign of any cooking equipment beyond the microwave oven, and meals simply involved a transfer of something from the fridge to the microwave oven. They were eaten in a solitary fashion, as and when uh, the mood took, which actually tended to be rather often. Uh, the members of the household were, a kind of, were kind of domestic foragers or hunter-gatherers, subsisting on pre-packaged and prepared foods. And surveys have shown that about 20% of British children do not eat a meal with another member of their household, um, and I... I say household rather than family, I think it's an important distinction, um, more frequently than once a week, and many less frequently than once a week. Indeed, in the prison, I would meet prisoners who had never in their entire uh, lives eaten a meal at a table with another person. And uh, from what I've been reading, although things may be better in Australia, there are parts of the country in which this would also be true, all this would also be true. Now, just imagine what a pattern of taking meals in the way that I have described actually means. The child who is subjected to it learns that in the matter of when and how to eat, his appetite and opportunity are the only things he has to consult. Meals for him are not social occasions. Uh, they are nasty, uh, solitary, uh, British and short. <laughs> and I might add frequent. He does not learn that for the sake of the convenience or wishes of others, he sometimes has to postpone eating or has sometimes even to eat when he doesn't really feel like it. He does not learn uh, to wait till others are served or to share what food is on the table. And these are very elementary social acquirements that he does not acquire. And I suspect that if they are not acquired early in life, uh, they are seldom acquired at all, or only with great difficulty. 
when you look closely at the rubbish strewn on the street, you realise that there are practically no fresh ingredients in the diet of what is so hastily consumed and uh, whose packaging is so carelessly discarded. Even the drinks in cans or plastic bottles contain large numbers of chemicals and no natural ingredients whatever. They, both the drinks and their containers, are of very bright and even garish colours, such as those that you would expect a magpie or a child to be attracted to. It did not come to me altogether as a surprise uh, when I read a paper in the British Journal of Psychiatry. It was a bit of a surprise that there was an interesting paper in the British Journal of Psychiatry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, but uh, this um, uh, paper reported the results of a double-blind trial of vitamin supplements to the diet of newly admitted young offenders to a young offender's prison in Britain and showed that such vitamin supplements reduced the incidence of bad behaviour quite significantly. Uh, the youths were not so much undernourished as malnourished. The first reaction of most people when they hear this is that the problem is one of income and the expense of food. And indeed, there is talk of so-called food deserts in England where it is indeed difficult to find fresh food, uh, particularly fruit and vegetables. But it is not a question of money. Not very far from where I used to live, in areas where many poor immigrant families lived, fruit and vegetables were so cheap that you could hardly carry away what you could buy for a small sum of money. So, for example, 10 kilos of onions or 10 kilos of carrots could be had for less than $3. The problem was a complete absence of will to cook or even knowledge of how to do so. This was a cultural problem that I personally have not encountered elsewhere and seems to me to indicate some poverty or perversion of spirit. Uh, and the problem is a serious one because it is in an intergenerational. There is reason to think that those who, are, who uh, have a, an obesity-inducing diet early in life have great difficulty in avoiding obesity uh, later in life. It is not impossible to lose weight and so on, but I do not think that we should be putting extra obstacles in the way of uh, a healthy life for children. I come now to the uh, so-called cycle of deprivation and poverty. According to this theory, our societies have their very own internal third world. And it was fashionable among developmental, development economists for a very long time to question why some countries were poor rather than why some countries were rich. For them, it was as if wealth were the default position of mankind. Man is born rich, as it were, but everywhere he is poor. Even the term deprivation suggests this, that one is deprived of something that is one's birthright. The development economist, for example, Raoul Prebisch, the head of the Economic Commission for Latin America, argued that there were countries so poor that their populations could never spare any income for useful investment purposes, and therefore that the government had to enforce investment by levying taxes and investing on the country's behalf and also seeking uh, foreign aid. 
Others, of course, said that the poor countries were poor because the rich countries were rich. And they didn't mean by this that uh, rich and poor being relational terms, there was a logical connection. They meant that rich countries were rich because they derived their wealth by making poor countries poor by various mechanisms. Now, all this is clearly false on the most elementary considerations, and I think it's now agreed that it's false. If it were true, man could hardly have emerged from the caves and countries would remain eternally ranked in the same way as far as wealth is concerned, which, as we know, is not true. With regard to the internal poverty of uh, relatively rich countries, similar arguments are still heard. There is a cycle of poverty or deprivation from which it is impossible for people to escape without providential assistance. Now, I don't in any way want to deny um, the difficulties that many people do, in fact, experience in escaping their circumstances. It's extremely difficult for them to do so. But it is the source and the nature of these circumstances and these difficulties that it is important to examine. Some time ago, the Guardian newspaper in Britain, I think there's an Australian online uh, version, published an interesting um, article, which surprised me as much, but that's the article in the <laughs> British Journal of Psychiatry. It uh, <clears throat> analysed the household wealth in Britain, not by social class or occupation, but by religious affiliation. And the results were extremely interesting. In effect, they should have destroyed completely the general outlook of the newspaper in which this article was published, but of course it didn't. The article showed that the two richest groups by religious affiliation were first the Jews and secondly the Sikhs. Of course, I am taking household wealth as a proxy for success in all aspects, uh, without claiming, of course, that financial success is the only or even the most important kind of success. I'm far from supposing that a man whose assets are worth $10 million is necessarily 10 times as successful as a man whose assets are, are worth $1 million, unless, that is, uh, both men attach equal and great uh, existential... Uh, yes, I'm saying that uh, I don't think uh, wealth is necessarily a measure of success unless uh, the, the people who are comparing themselves uh, take it to be such. Nevertheless, as a measure of success, I think it's uh, suitable, especially if e economic explanations are offered in the matter of uh, human behaviour. For example, that social pathology of various kinds is straightforwardly a consequence of poverty as uh, the direction of a billiard ball is determined by the mechanical forces acting on it by other balls or by a billiard cue. In other words, that human conduct is a vector of forces and nothing else. Just a vector of forces. Now, the history of the Jews and the Sikhs in Britain is similar in certain respects, though their history is separated by uh, some decades. Speaking foreign languages with alien customs, both were impoverished on arrival. Both experienced a welcome that was not always uh, warm, as is the traditional English way. <laughs> there was prejudice against both groups, though no legal obstacle to their advancement, and the prejudice was not so great that they were not, on the whole, left to get on with things on their, uh, in their own way. 
and the government neither helped them nor hindered them in any special way, nor did it treat them in any way different from how it treated other people. And within what in historical terms is a blinking of an eye, both groups, as we have seen, succeeded very well. Why did they succeed? It was despite prejudice, and sometimes I've even wondered whether it was because of prejudice that added an additional spur uh, to their endeavours. Two factors seem to me to have been of vital importance, however. The first is the maintenance of the family structure, but perhaps more importantly, the right attitude to education and personal effort, a kind of entrepreneurialism of the soul, as it were. This entrepreneurialism was not confined to the purely economic, but also the educational and intellectual sphere. Their success was not the result of having leaders who lobbied on their behalf. Although it is true that uh, Jews moved swiftly into the political sphere, they did so as a consequence of their success rather than the cause of their success, and I think this was the healthier way round. Now, when I debated in public in Britain the matter of poverty with a journalist who is uh, famed for her very public sympathy for all the people suffering in the whole world, and particularly believes that governmental redistribution through taxation is the solution, on a world basis, I should add, uh, is the solution and the only solution to the problem of poverty in our society and its statistically associated social pathology. I mentioned the great success of the Jews and the Sikhs, um, starting, who started from a position of even greater poverty. And after all, they were living in very poor conditions. They started in very poor conditions. I was sure, I said, that she would not have wanted to say that the economic success of the Jews and Sikhs was at the expense of anyone else in the country. That in effect, we live in a zero-sum economy in which my success is your failure and a crumb in my mouth is a crumb less in yours. And to be fair to her, she did not want to say that though I suspect not from any uh, consideration of economic principles, but from fear of appearing uh, prejudiced in a very crude way. To all this she replied, yes, but what you have to remember is that immigrants are often enterprising people. This, of course, was precisely my point. The difference is in the mentality and the culture, not in the raw economic situation or circumstances in which these people found themselves. And if this is true, those who instill or try to instill, either in theory or practice, mentalities of the poor with the idea that there is an exterior answer to the predicament that will by itself resolve or improve their predicament without any particular effort on their part other possibly than political are actually compounding the situation. In this uh, connection, I can't help recalling a visit to a home in the area in which I was working early on my, in my career. It was, uh, uh, it was to the house of a single mother with three small children, in a house whose not unpleasant back garden was full of rubbish, so full of rubbish that it was no longer suitable for children uh, to play in. Uh, why don't you clean it up for the children to play in? I asked mildly, I, I hope. Um, and she said, well, I phoned the council, but they don't come. 
And that, as far as she was concerned, was that. There was nothing further that could be done. And interestingly, the other day I was speaking to Mr. Warren Mundine, who told me an almost exactly similar story about uh, an Aboriginal um, uh, quarter of a, an Australian town. Whatever may have been the case in the past, at other times and in other places, the lines of William Blake seem to me now to have some application. I wander through each chartered street, near where the chartered Thames doth flow, and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. In every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every ban, the mind forge manacles I hear. No doubt I construe all this in a slightly different way from how uh, Blake intended, but it seems to me that the phrase, the mind-forged manacles, ought to be ever-present in our minds. Is what we propose, is what we say or do, likely to strengthen or to strike off those manacles? The manacles are forged both by those who wear them and by those who propound theories that, in the modern world, suggest that the manacles are not mind-forged, but, so to speak, structural in our society. Again, it's no use referring to the past to prove that manacles were not mind-forged, but forged in some other way. For to do this is to indulge in a kind of mirror-image historicism in which the myth of the Golden Age is replaced by the myth of an age in which men were not more self-directed than billiard balls. Men make their own history, wrote Karl Marx in 1852, but they do not make it just as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. And just as they seem to be occupied with revolutionising themselves and things, creating something that did not exist before, precisely in such epochs of revolutionary crisis, they anxiously conjure up the spirits of the past to their service, borrowing uh, from them names, battle slogans and costumes in order to present this new scene in world history in time-honoured disguise and borrowed language. Now, this passage seems to me well worth pondering on, both for its truths and its uh, untruths. And since I'm in Australia, let me quote a line from a recent Australian book, Talking to My Country, by the eminent and talented, uh, decent journalist Stan Grant. I am the sum of many things, he wrote, but I am all history. This is not merely false, but harmful. It is precisely the kind of sentiment that will forge many a manacle in many a mind, should anyone choose to believe it. No one experiences himself as the sum of many things, as if he were only a pile of bricks to which he himself had contributed uh, or added nothing. If he claims to have done so, he is special pleading for himself or trying to put one over on you. As for being all history, no one is all history, however important history may be. A pebble might be all history, but not a human being, except in very rare circumstances. If we were all history, there would be no variation in how we reacted to history. 
Well, Marx adduces against the possibility of human freedom that each man is born, as he puts it, in circumstances existing already given and transmitted from the past. This is true because it is a truism. One cannot imagine an existence that is completely free of circumstances or one in which there is no time. But it does not follow from this that man can never be free any more than it follows from the fact that every language has its rules, uh, that nothing new can be said. If there is one thing, ladies and gentlemen, that I would like you to remember from, what, uh, from all that I have said, it is not my words, but the words of William Blake, the mind-forged manacles. Thank you. Thank you very much. From uh, Stan Grant to William Blake via the rubbish of Burning Birmingham <laughs> um, takes us on a, on a fascinating journey. What you've outlined is really a whole set of social values and a system that, that uh, contributes to those mind-forged manacles that, that you've... Talking about an underclass, it has become self-perpetuating that it's a culture as much as anything else. It's no longer something where there is a simple, a single policy lever that could shift it. These are the most difficult things of all to change, to influence, to affect, because they're complex, they're diffuse, um, and they encompass you know, whole sets of areas. If you had to think of some strategic interventions to make a difference to that culture, where would you start? Uh, <laughs> We're starting with the big questions <laughs> first. Um, and that's a very difficult question, I must admit. Uh, but it must be something that you I've have thought, thought about, about yes. immensely. Well, I can, you see, I can see um, uh, theoretically how you could affect the situation. But politically, it's impossible, and politics is the art of the possible, not, uh, it's not a kind of syllogism. So, so uh, syllogistically, you can see that there are certain requirements that should be made for people to get welfare and so on and so forth, and it should be withdrawn under certain circumstances and so on. But in, in fact, in politics, that's extremely difficult to do. The first thing you have to do is to change... Uh, you have to explain why you are proposing reform. Because if you don't even admit the phenomena, you can't re reform if you think that there's something that needs to be done. And I don't know that we have even reached the stage of admitting the phenomena. Why is that, do you think? Do you think this is because it's something that people have become accustomed to and, and have just accepted at a certain level? Well, if I were a Marxist, I might say that it's, the, the whole system doesn't benefit, or, or should I say benefit in inverted commas, because it doesn't really benefit them. It doesn't just benefit the recipients of welfare. There's an enormous apparatus that is equally dependent on it. And we can see how difficult it is. To, to take one uh, example of how difficult it is to get a shift, it has been shown, I think, as, about as conclusively as it's possible to show, that even the most 
underprivileged children, the ones coming from the worst homes and so on, can be taught to read adequately. And yet, after spending billions and billions uh, in Australia, but also probably even worse in Britain, 20% uh, of children come out being of schools being unable to uh, read properly. Uh, we spend, in Britain, I think the, it's about between 70 and 80,000 pounds uh, on a child's education between, the fi uh, between 5 and 11, and I would imagine the figure is something similar in Australia. Uh, and in a way, it's a modern miracle that children can come out not being able to read. Now... Uh, How do you explain that? Well, I think it's the, frankly, it's the interests of the teachers who, who resist. Uh, the, partly it's the educationists who don't want to admit that they have betrayed 40 years' worth of children. And, and the ones who have been most uh, betrayed are the poorest. I'll give you, if I may give you examples, if go off the subject slightly. But I used to test uh, some of my young uh, patients, and I hope in a non-threatening way, but I used to give them something to read. And they would pick it up. It would be a very simple passage, and they would go, but they would come to a word uh, which was three syllables. And they would say, I don't know that one as if English were written ideographically, as if it were Chinese. And sometimes they would stumble through a sentence. And then I'd say, what did it mean? And they would say, I don't know, I was only reading it. As if reading were something that you did to propitiate somebody and had no internal meaning. Another one, <laughs> as a piece de resistance, really, uh, I said, uh, what's three times four? And he said, we didn't get that far. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then we would move on to history. And um, the, I, I mean, uh, in, what was it, 15 years, I met three children who knew the dates of the Second World War. And... Um, and uh, one of them was obviously extremely gifted because he concluded from the fact that there had been a Second World War that there must have been a First World War. <laughs> uh, and this it seems astonishing to me, I, I mean, astonishing and terrible, of course, uh, that 70 or 80,000 pounds could have been spent on, people, on children for them to come out of school like that. What is the future for such people? In, a, in an economy where there isn't really much room for just uh, brute force. Limited, so, limited and, uh, and um, tragic, one would imagine. Yes, terrible. Yeah. It's absolutely awful. If, if we look more specifically at the kind of factors that make the difference, for example, in, those, in, in the cases of, of, of uh, the Sikhs or, 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 or the Jews, the, the differences for example, in terms of family structure that make a difference. Um, again, this is a complex series of, um, it, it, you know, in theory it's, it's a set of facts, which is if 
partners don't marry, they're more likely, you know, more likely to separate, children more likely to live in what, you know, that, what you refer to as a household rather than a family, a looser correlation of, of kinds of things, so that you can see that there are a set of steps. But, you know, making a law that says that everybody is going to, has to get married is not going to make any, you know, that, that, that's not the kind of, there's not an intervention that could change that. It's a very complex social, long, quite long social process by which it has become acceptable not to be, you know, the, the, way, the way those things change is very long. What, what could reverse, and, and in a way it's going back to a model or going back to some elements of a model that pertained, you know, up till the 1940s or 50s, yes, I yeah. would say. Well, the, uh, the levers are very limited for, for what a government could do. It could theoretically uh, uh, use the welfare system to try and enforce um, um, different forms of association. But I don't think, first of all, it might not work. Uh, secondly, it might lead to great hardship. And thirdly, there isn't any will to do it anyway. Mm. So uh, the only thing that one can do, I suppose, is, uh, is uh, make propaganda. I'm reading a book at the moment that suggests that, um, that, that people on welfare, women on welfare, should actually be given... Uh, should have to take long-term contraception. But I don't think we're, we're ever going to get to that kind of um, uh, level of... of um, of, of imposition of social control, yeah. social control. Yeah. and it's rather unpleasant actually um, so uh, it's very difficult to see how, how it's going to be reversed it's a bit like trying to make eggs out of an omelette mm. <laughs> difficult <laughs> Um, before we move to some questions in the audience, I want to talk to you, a little, get you to elaborate a little bit on, on the very compelling figures that you outlined about violence. New Zealand, it's obviously become a very scary place. Um, but that um, incredible trajectory of the increase in violent crime, no matter how, you know, how much of the, how much of the edges of that is eaten yeah. away by, by, by the means of calculation. What do you, so we, what, what you told us was very clearly that there's not a correlation with poverty. What do you see as the causes of that? Well, there's co usually a correlation within oh, a society, a within yeah. a society, but not between societies. Yeah. So, um, but what is the cause of it? Yes. Uh, well, of course, if I, I mean, Charles Murray thinks that certainly with regard to Britain, the uh, sentencing system has had a huge effect. So that, for example, in 1900, there were 6.5 indictable crimes for uh, one prisoner, and now there are 115 indictable crimes per prisoner. Uh, and he claims, and I, I must admit I, I haven't examined his argument very closely, he claims that the decline in sentencing preceded the rise in crime. So that everywhere and he claims not just Britain, but other countries, he claims that the, the reduction in the severity of punishment has ha actually had this effect. And there are, uh, there was a distinguished British criminologist called Jock Young. He was a very well-known uh, criminologist. He did actually say that criminology has been a hundred-year conspiracy um, against uh, the idea that punishment has anything whatever to do with levels of 
uh, crime. And therefore, on that theory, criminologists are the main cause of crime. <laughs> um, but no doubt this is all very simplistic, and there are other things, of course. I mean, there's a whole... There's a whole... Um, the whole concatenation of circumstances. Well, and in fact, very interestingly, and I'm not sure whether this is the case in Britain, but I do think it's common to the Anglosphere countries, is that there's been a dramatic decline in levels of violent crime in the last 20 years, with the exception of sexual assault. Um, so that what you've got a situation now where levels of crime, murder, yeah. serious uh, uh, assault, with the exception of sexual assault, are declining... Levels of incarceration are rising. The two may be related. Well, not not in that the levels of incarceration are rising because people are incarcerated mainly. I mean, if you look at what people are incarcerated for, often it's drug, not not those levels of serious crime. Not in England. No. Not in England. Not no. in England. It's I mean, unless you don't count burglary as a serious crime. I yeah. doesn't. I suppose it depends whether you you think of burglary as a a, a serious crime or not. Uh, but. Uh, uh, most of the m- most of the um, um, crimes are, are quite serious. There was an interesting paper in the Lancet. Interesting because it was so bad. Um, uh, actually, not a lo- lover of journals. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like them. I like you know they. I like to read them in the morning. They wake me up. <laughs> uh, about um, uh, about. Uh, 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 levels of crime and, and uh, violent crime and the ability to predict uh, crime, uh, repeat criminal criminality by people in prison. And one of the things they noted en passant was that it was, they didn't say how associated it was, but they said that the likelihood of violent crimes committed by uh, uh, people coming out of prison was greater the shorter their sentence. But presumably you could just say because that, that was because of age. No, I mean, even if you control for age, that's not so. And in fact, there are reasons why it should really be the other way around, because the people who are sentenced to longer crime, uh, to longer sentences, okay. are usually people who've either committed more crimes or more or serious, serious crimes, crimes, so that they are further down the... It is true, however, what is very interesting about the British statistics, and I don't see any reason why the Australian statistics should be any different, but they might be, I haven't looked at them, um, is that 97 to 98% of people received into prison for a new offence are under the age of 39, which suggests that that either they get so good at crime that they evade the police, which I must say is probably not very difficult to do in England, but, uh, or they're not committing it anymore, and it mm. just is a thing that dies out on itself. The other thing, another very interesting thing that interests me, was that my, the prisoners used to um, confide in me uh, what they'd actually done, not what they were charged with. And um, they really, most of them, practically all of them, had done between five and 20 times as much as they'd ever been charged with. In some cases, if they were very efficient, much more than that. The statistics bear this out. And what I was rather alarmed at in this this, um, um, 
paper in The Lancet, for example, which showed an elementary lack of understanding of the phenomena, is that it m mistook uh, first offences for first convictions. And they, I can assure you that they are not the same thing at all. Mm. We'll take some questions from the floor. There's, as I said, there's a microphone here uh, and uh, just over here and one on the mezzanine level up there. Um, now we have a light on them so that you can see where they are. Um, before we do that, can I just ask, how did you come to work in, a pr in the prison? And Well, it wouldn't have been possible now because I went... Uh, <laughs> I knew the, the chief medical officer in this prison, which was a very large one. It had 1,400 prisoners. And uh, I went in to say I was seeing someone for the courts or something like that. And he said, uh, would you like to come to work here? And I said, all right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the end of my interview. <laughs> Why did and you say yes? Uh, well, it's very interesting. You do yeah. meet interesting people. It's not one thing you can't say. It was never boring. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and it turned out to be quite a good career move from the point of view of writing. And when you, were you, I mean, one thing I mentioned in, in the introduction was how uh, extraordinary as a reader it was to discover your stories of, of people in prison, how... Um, how fresh and different your account of those people was. How, was, it, was, it in very, was it? How interesting was it to you to discover those stories? Oh, it was extremely interesting because, like everyone else, I wouldn't have suspected this world actually existed. I didn't actually know anything about it, and it was like going abroad every day. So, um, <laughs> except, of course, that... Uh, Unfortunately, the housing estates around, as I subsequently learned, were in effect prisons without any warders. And as any prisoner will tell you, uh, a prison without a warder, controlled by the prisoners, is the worst kind of prison. They may, may not like the warders and may say, you know, it's them and us, we're against the warders. But in their hearts, they know they're dependent for their safety on the warders. Mm. We have a question here. I'm not sure if I should address you as Theodore or Anthony, but whatever. <laughs> Could I ask you to um, comment on the, what you think about the connection of affluence in modern society, the connection with crime? Um, the, that marvellous movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy, um, illustrates the impact of, of um, goods and um, chattels, one might say, on society. Um, and similarly, the cargo cult, um, which reminds us of today of the age of entitlement. Yeah. Um, but the, the impact of, of affluence in particular on, on modern society. Um, well, I, um, of course, this is a strange argument. It used to be said that it was poverty that caused crime, and now it's affluence. One explanation of why people didn't steal very much, even during the Great Depression, is that there was nothing much to steal. But if you're extremely poor, even a very small thing is worth stealing. Uh, and yet, in working-class areas, in, in so I'm told, uh, I'm not that old, but uh, I'm told that in working-class areas of Birmingham by people who lived there just after the Great Depression. People left their front doors open. Um, and there's always something to steal. Uh, 
so the, that is an argument that the, the sheer volume of goods um, allows people to steal and so on. Uh, I don't think that can really be the explanation because there are very wealthy countries, much wealthier actually than our countries, in which crime rates are low, such as Switzerland. Switzerland has a low crime rate. Incidentally, it has a very high, uh, it has the highest proportion of people who are immigrants in the world and it has a very low uh, crime rate. So uh, I don't think it's, a, it can't be a simple relationship. Um, I, uh, the relationship with drugs is an interesting one. There are drugs which can cause people, not cause people, but uh, encourage people, I suppose, to commit acts of violence. There are reasons why ICE should, for example, cause people to uh, commit um, acts of violence. But heroin uh, is not in that category, and yet is frequently cited in Britain, and probably not in Australia, as a cause of acquisitive crime, addiction. But I think that's wrong. So I, I don't really think that there is much of a, a, of a connection. Mm. We have, uh, you may have seen recently somebody uh, in a court case, I think in the United States, claiming affluenza made them do it. <laughs> Having been uh, insufficiently, having been given too much and ignored too frequently by their parents, they'd been sent to a life of crime by that. Uh, but microphone number two. Hi, Theodore. Thanks for uh, your time tonight. It's been really good so far. Very interesting. Um, my question is to do with your uh, proposition that uh, violence is increasing. There's a significant amount of work that I've read from um, scholars like Stephen Pinker and the like who have actually come out and said that violence at least in Western societies, um, seems, seems to be decreasing. Um, he points to things like the uh, incidence of death in combat and the incidence of capital punishment um, decreasing over time so that maybe there was an increase uh, in the 20th century, um, but generally over time pe people seem to be getting more peaceful. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Um, and secondly, uh, you seem to uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, the role of... Uh, restorative versus retributive justice. Um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on developments in neurolaw, which seem to sort of point to restorative justice as a better way to go in terms of uh, fixing society, if yeah. you like. Well, uh, with regard to the, the, the Pinker question, um, whether crime is increasing or a violent crime is increasing or decreasing, of course, depends on your start date. So if your start date is 1200, uh, then, of course, the murder rate was extremely high uh, because well, people probably were violent and also once you were hit, uh, you could die of septicemia just from a small cut. Um, so uh, the question is, which is the relevant comparison, not... Uh, whether it, you know, over 500 years it's increased or not, or decreased for that matter. So, of course, it is perfectly true that we're much more secure uh, in many respects than we were. Nevertheless, if living memory is, or very nearly living memory, is your uh, standard of comparison, then, uh, which seems to me a more natural way to look at it, then crime has actually increased, even if it's decreasing now. Although, with regard to Britain, I must tell you that I have great 
um, having looked at the statistics quite closely, I have every confidence in the capacity of officialdom to manipulate the statistics. <laughs> and uh, when I talked to, uh, I, having slated uh, criminologists, I spoke to some in uh, France recently um, who said exactly the same about the French uh, statistics, and I don't see what, whether what is true in Britain and France should not be true elsewhere. But I'm agnostic about, about that. Mm. Um, well, Stephen Pinker's argument certainly is very much about the historical long term, yes. and it's also about uh, war, combat. It's yes. not, a, not, not, just not about, about crime. So it's not just about crime. It's possible crime. for you both to be right. Well, as I said, it depends. <laughs> it depends what you think is the relevant comparison. Yes. And uh, personally, I think the relevant for me the relevant comparison is perhaps within my memory and possibly my parents' memory, uh, and and not the 13th century. But you, I can see that other people might think differently. With regard to restorative and retributive uh, justice, I'm not sure that restorative justice has been shown to work. And in any case, there's more to um, to it than, uh, than uh, meets the eye. Um, because I think, uh, uh, as C.S. Lewis points out, there must be an element of retribution. Because otherwise, what you're saying is that, that uh, there is no justice. However, I, I have no, I'm not a sadist. I don't want uh, people to be uh, horribly punished or anything like that. Um, and we can await results. But there have been many, many attempts over the years to do something other than, uh, than immobilise uh, criminals. And really, uh, it often hasn't, almost always hasn't worked. And we've seen the most, we've seen enormous victimisation of hundreds, literally hundreds of thousands of people in Britain by the non immobilization or, uh, of, of criminals and not taking it seriously. To give you an example of the kind of, of laxity of European justice, consider the case of the two Belgian bombers who blew themselves up. One of them was a bank robber, and he opened up on the police with a Kalashnikov. And he got nine years prison sentence, and he was released after four years. Under conditions, the most terrible of which was that he should go to the probation officer once a month. I mean, that's for a man wielding a Kalashnikov. And uh, the problem with that kind of thing is that if you impose a sentence like that for opening up on the police with a Kalashnikov, what can you give a, a common or garden burglar? because the, the, the punishment has to be, in some sense, proportional to the crime. So this exerts a downward uh, compression on sentencing, which we've seen in England and exists in France as well. And is that regime of sentencing uh, pragmatic or ideological? Well, I think it's a bit of both. I, I, I mean, obviously, they, it doesn't work to keep people out of prison, of course, because they keep coming back, the same people. I mean, the, the statistics that I gave were, in a sense, they were optimistic, because even in very 
relatively high crime periods is still a very rather small proportion of the population that is committing a very high percentage of the crimes. So, I mean, I used to go through people's uh, criminal records and would see that they'd been convicted 50, 60, 100 times. Um, and the fact that the, even they grew out of it was optimistic because it meant that there, were, there, was, there was something you could do if you had the political uh, will. Up here at microphone number two. Thank you. Thank you very much for your <clears throat> very uh, illustrative discourse. Alarmingly, I, I, I find it, it's, it's now half a century since uh, Pat Moynihan, the Democrat senator from New York, wrote a, a, a paper called, um, I think, Defining Down Deviancy, which you may or may not be familiar with, but it, 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 it uh, drew upon... Uh, the revelation that he had encountered third-generation welfare dependency amongst the black community in New York, which had always been uh, a relatively stable, far more stable than the white community in terms of church-going and religious observance and, and the unity of the family, which you were, you were touching on earlier on. And in that paper, he, he talked about the T the tendency, the alarming tendency, as he saw it in New York in the 60s, to redefine um, various social terms to make acceptable cus mores, which had been frowned upon in previous generations, such as uh, uh, ch illegitimate uh, children and so on and so forth, how much do you think that, how prescient was that paper? And, and do you think that, uh, that Moynihan then was really uh, looking at uh, outlining what, what in fact has taken place? Um, well, I think it was prescient. It did, it did take place in a on a much bigger scale. He was, slammed, he was slammed for it at the time. Yes. Yeah. And it, 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 it's occurred on a much bigger scale than he probably even anticipated. And um, what to do about it is a very difficult uh, question now. But the, uh, if you, uh, I mean, our use of the word judgmental is a very interesting uh, one. Um, I don't know how, how many uh, minutes you can go without making a judgment, either moral or aesthetic. But I doubt whether you could go more than 10 minutes or maybe not even that. So the idea that not making a judgment uh, is a good thing, uh, even though, of course, it is a judgment in itself. Uh, it's a kind of... <laughs> it's a meta-judgment, as one might say. Um, uh, seems to me... And the, and the, the non-judgmentalism is usually in favour of, um, of the breakdown of some kind of a social agreement or taboo. Um, and there are interesting uh, things I've noticed about how people suddenly become moral philosophers when you ask them, uh, for example, to take their feet down from the uh, seat in front of them in a train. And suddenly you, fi you find yourself in this curious position of having to produce a Cartesian point <laughs> from which you can prove that it is wrong to put your feet up on the seat. 
I mean, in, in your uh, trains here, you have a $100 fine, which uh, there's no argument about it. But, um, and suddenly they, they'll start saying, well, um, why should I? And you're suddenly in this position of trying to find a good reason. And it's horrible. You can't find a good reason, really, if you say, well, it's dirty. Say, my feet are clean. Or alternatively, what is the evidence that a dirty seat does anyone any harm? And of course, there is. You know, there have been no double-blind trials on <laughs> dirty seats in trains. And so this is an instance of how uh, what a British judge said was the basis of civilization. That is, the obedience to the unenforceable. <laughs> Good manners. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, but what you, fi you find yourself in this kind of absurd situation only when someone is, is doing something that uh, you feel that he shouldn't do. I mean, nobody says, why do I help an old lady across the road, you know, or anything like that. They, they always become um, metaphysical when, when, when they're being asked to, <laughs> to, to stop doing do something. something. <laughs> From microphone number one down here. Uh, can I say first, thank you very much for your talk tonight. It's been very entertaining. And uh, secondly, can I say in defence of my profession that uh, in Australia, at least, the decline in literacy is due less to the teachers than to the education academics. Okay. Um, I'm trusting that there are no education academics <laughs> in the audience, but uh, prob probably right. <laughs> uh, and a question related to that. Yeah, you can't count on anything in this. Uh... No. I can't uh, see anybody leaving. <laughs> good. Uh, a question in relation to that, you talked about the social mobility of the Jews and the Sikhs in England, and I was thinking, particularly given the period in British history when that happened, do you see any of that as being due to the decline in the grammar schools in England? Because this has been an issue in Australia in the last 20 years or so as well. Uh, yes, I think the uh, decline, or the uh, elimination, not quite the elimination, but the decline in grammar schools was a, a catastrophic error, and it wasn't only... Uh, because it, it caused... It wasn't only an educational error, but it was a cultural error, because... Uh, and, um, and a social error. Because in the days when there were grammar schools, they more or less... And they existed everywhere. They existed in poor areas. Of course, a smaller percentage of poor people went to them, but nevertheless, they were available for poor people. They exerted an enormous cultural influence on the whole area and they were a guarantee of social mobility. However, uh, um, some people have denied that social mobility has declined. Um, and I know that uh, somebody who used to work for the uh, uh, Centre for Independent Studies, uh, Professor Saunders, uh, denies that uh, social mobility in Britain anyway has declined. But I'm in... Um, in agreement with you. I'm also in agreement that the real problem is the teacher training colleges and the, and the educationists. I had the extraordinary experience in South Australia once, a few years ago, I can't remember how many years ago, of sharing a platform with a woman who denied that it was necessary to teach Aboriginal children to read because it was against their culture. And this is only a few years ago. And, and she was an academic. And of course, I suppose that doesn't surprise you, because only academics <laughs> could say such a thing. <laughs> but, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm in sympathy with what, with what you imply. Mm. Final question from microphone number two up here. 
This is a pretty short one, hopefully. Um, so you mentioned that the in America in the 1990s, the uh, violent crimes were much higher than they were earlier in this earlier last century. Um, how do you respond to the argument that that can be accounted for by the lead in petrol, and that after that was um, removed, it um, violent crimes have decreased? Oh, sorry, the generation where that stopped affecting violent crime has decreased. Well, I think that's. Uh, I- I suspect that that's a kind of correlation and not a causative thing. After all, in, uh, in 1900, they had lead in paint, which was probably a much bigger source of lead, actually. And lead, they had lead pipes, even. So I, I, I rather doubt, I, I don't know. Uh, but I would imagine that this is one of those correlations which which isn't causing... But I have no, I'm not an expert on that. I wouldn't... Um, I, I, I wouldn't I, after all, I have mentioned that uh, giving uh, vitamins to, um, uh, to offenders in uh, young offending prisons to, um, seems to make them less aggressive. So it, I suppose it's a possibility. The other thing... Uh, well, there are lots of possibilities, really. But I think it might be a correlation rather than causative. Before we go, what are you working on now? Uh, well, I'm working on a slightly unusual book. I, I and my wife, we live in a place called uh, Shropshire, and uh, we went on a little journey down to south, southwest Wales. And we, uh, south, going that route is a particularly good um, uh, area for second-hand books. And um, I stopped off, we stopped off in various places and I bought second-hand books. And what I want to show is that a two-day journey uh, could give you enough intellectual sustenance for the rest of your life. (laughs) Well, that's a much more cheerful answer than I had expected. (laughs) I thought perhaps we were going to go into murder or mayhem of some other kind. Well, I'm thinking of uh, writing... Well, I've done a first draft of a a memoir of uh, murderers I have known. (laughs) Well, I think the combination of those projects and I'm sure many others will will keep keep you busy and happier. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming to talk to us this evening. It's been an evening... Oh, sorry. I'm sorry, sorry, we've run out. We've, we've, okay, go ahead. Uh, so my question is whether you think social media or grassroots movements can play a role in triggering a cultural shift and liberating people from these mind-forged manacles, especially in younger generations. Yes. Well, I suppose uh, using them uh, to do that, but of course they can be used in the opposite way as well, unfortunately, as we've uh, uh, known they can be liberating, but they can also be uh, promotional of violence. So um, all I can say is do what you can, but uh, I have nothing nothing else to say really on that subject. Thank you for coming to talk to us this evening. Thank you.